But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, so obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and heifers, sorry, goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that that lead to death so that we may see the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the covenant, first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant, which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. I think I'm going to leave it there. It's quite a long reading otherwise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay. Well, I have two points that I want to make, two simple points. And the first of this is that we are made alive through death. Alive through death. And that we are cleansed through dirt cleansed through dirt. The blood of Christ makes us bold because we are made alive through death and cleansed through dirt. Now, these kind of contradictions are all over uh, our faith, aren't there? There's so many of these contradictions in the Christian faith, and I think they kind of keep us on our toes, don't they? So that whenever um, uh, life seems fine and good and we're kind of coasting along and we're cruising and things are okay, actually, these kind of contradictions can cause us to to question and say, actually, is this superficial and what's going on beneath the surface? Are we actually far from God? And when life is full of struggle and angst and turmoil and pain, we can actually find that God is really right up close to us and right in the midst of the death and right in the midst of the dirt. These kind of contradictions kind of keep us on our toes, don't they? Well, I'm going to look at the first one, alive through death. How are you watching bloodshed on TV? I've already explained to you that I'm not so hot at this. But every so often, something will pass my TV screens that uh, will cause me to, to think about this. Have you, um, has anyone here been watching Dexter? Has anyone seen, uh, uh, no? No, you're probably pretty 
good decision there, I think. I think that's probably the bloodiest one that I've seen flashing across my screen recently, where this forensic technician is a vigilante, and he's taken it upon himself, not just to work in the lab, but to work out uh, how you know, uh, killers get away with it, but then to go and exact justice according to his moral code. And I think that often involves a lot of cutting up of bodies. And despite my squeamishness, as, um, as a teenager, I did watch my fair share of horror movies, you know, with the tomato ketchup going all over the place, uh, peeping out between my fingers at the horror. And there's a whole load of horror films out at the moment because we're approaching Halloween, so it's quite hard to avoid some of the, the gore and the bloodshed out there. Well, there's a whole lot of drama of bloodshed and death going on in the Old Testament. And in particular, in relation to this passage, a whole lot related to animals that were killed as part of worship. Uh, the writer here refer refers to uh, goats and bulls being ritually slaughtered, their throats cut, the blood poured out. In the temple, the priests were there to make daily offerings of animals up to God. And on annually, one day of the year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go right into the inner court, the Holy of Holies, and make a sacrifice on behalf of all the people. Sacrifices were made for sin offerings, for peace offerings, for thank offerings, all kinds of uh, experiences that people wanted to express their worship to God, relate back to God, would involve some form of bloodshed. Some of them were mandatory, compulsory, you had to do this if you were a good, faithful follower of God. Some were voluntary if you wanted to, like, you know, get an extra bit of, uh, uh, you know, strengthen your relationship with God, you do some voluntary ones. But they were all costly, all costly sacrifices. Costly for the one who made it, uh, whether you, if you were a richer person and you could afford a sheep or a, um, a, a, a cow or uh, if you were poorer, it would be like a pigeon or like a bird, some kind of bird. Costly, because you'd be giving of the best of your livestock. But obviously very costly too for the little animal involved. So uh, the poor goat or cow or pigeon, they didn't get much choice in the matter. There was so much blood and there was so much death that was part of early worship. So, for example, let me just share with you, like, I'm just going to paint a little picture for you. On the day of preparation, that's the day before the Passover, um, every family who was able to would go to Jerusalem for this special festival. So the city would be absolutely packed, heaving full of people. And every man in the household would be asked to bring a lamb to be slaughtered in the temple. I'm so glad it was the men. The, the men would bring the lamb in to be slaughtered. They would be responsible for cutting the throats of the lamb. The blood would then be collected by priests in bowls, which would then be taken up the temple steps, up and dashed against the, uh, the steps there and poured out. The blood would be poured out. And then the, the worshipper, the, the person who had brought the lamb for worship, would be also responsible for skinning the lamb and for taking out its entrails. Imagine having to do that on a Sunday morning. You have it so easy. You have Palo Chocolat provided. I mean, honestly. Um, the Jewish historian Josephus says that on one um, day of preparation before Passover, this is one, in one year, 256,500 lambs were slaughtered. 256,500 lambs. 
Imagine that number of uh, carcasses. Now, some of the other historians around that time reckon that's a bit exaggerated. It's a bit OTT. It's kind of like pushing it a bit. Like we might say the number of people who've come to church on Sunday. Oh, hundreds and hundreds. Um, but it's still a pretty intense picture, isn't it? Imagine all those people in one quite small space jostling for it to get kind of in the queue in order for you to be able to go up and make your sacrifice for your family. The sun beating down on you, all that noise of all those people, uh, all the animals bleating and fearful. Imagine the stench of all those animals, especially when they're scared, you know what happens? And then the gallons and gallons of blood being thrown against the stone of the temple steps. It's a pretty vivid and unpleasant scene, isn't it? And once is not enough for those sacrifices. That would need to be repeated year in, year out, year in, year out. Well, to understand the kind of the flip side of that, I painted a pretty unpleasant picture there for you. But the flip side, we need to go back to um, the ancient Hebrew understanding of what blood was all about. If we go right back to Genesis chapter 9, where God is making a covenant, an agreement with Noah, and he says this, you must not eat meat that has the life blood in it, the life blood. And then again, when the law is given to Moses in Leviticus 17, it says, For the life of a creature is in the blood. I've given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Therefore, say to the people, none of you may eat the life blood. There's nothing magical about the plasma and the platelets and the white and red blood cells. Nothing magical about the blood itself, this red stuff that flows through our bodies. But it is a symbol of life. Now, to many of us, we might see it as a symbol of death because we've seen too many of those things on TV. But to the Jewish mind, blood isn't a sign of death. It's a sign of life. It's the very core main symbol for life itself is blood. On that night of the first Passover, uh, do you remember the people are in slavery in Egypt and they're getting ready to flee? And the people of God are commanded to kill an unblemished lamb, the most perfect lamb that they can find, and put the blood over the tops and down the sides of the door so that when the Lord passes over, he passes over the houses, those inhabitants will live. The blood is a sign of life. It says, death is not welcome here. This is a place of life. Well, that's what the writer to the Hebrews wants us to understand. Christ's blood is shed so that we might receive the promised eternal inheritance, eternal life, that we might serve the living God. Repeated sacrifices, sacrifices of death, those animals are no longer needed. Few, we're let off the hook The death of one brings life to all. So for a moment, imagine in your minds, go back to that that scene of of, uh, smells and, uh, and sort of vivid, the white walls of the temple and the red blood being poured out of it. Uh, on that day of preparation, the day before the Passover, imagine in your mind that scene, those, all those lambs crying out, bleating and being slaughtered, all that noise and the chaos and bloodshed. Well, according to John's gospel, 
This was the same day in which Jesus himself was crucified, across the other side of the city, as the lambs cried out, bleating in fear, the Lamb of God was being led silently to be nailed to the cross. The Passover lamb, sacrificed for all of us, putting the end to the need for any kind of those rituals ever again. And of course, the radical difference between uh, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice of animals is, uh, is that it's voluntary, it's willing. The Lamb chooses to go, the Lamb of God chooses to go to slaughter. The words of Jesus from John's Gospel, I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I have the authority to lay it down of my own accord. I have all the authority to lay it down and take it up again. The sacrifice that Jesus makes is self-giving. He has a choice. He doesn't need to go through with it. But out of love, he chooses to allow himself to die as our Passover lamb. As we heard in previous weeks, Jesus is the high priest who makes the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, but he's also the lamb that is offered out of love for us. Jesus' blood is shed that we might be made fully alive, and then he himself on the third day lives again. So where in your life are you in need of a free-flowing new sense of life? What areas, when you think about your life, where do you need to know that life to the full? In what areas of your life do you feel like things are dying? Where do you think there there are places of death? Well, there is an invitation today to that generous and extravagant life that Jesus is offering. Jesus says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. But whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up on the third day. So, of course, this meal of remembering that life is enacted all around the world every week. We take bread and we take wine, and we recall the blood that Jesus shed for us on the cross. And the blood tastes of grapes, but it also tastes of life. We're going to share communion in a few minutes to celebrate this meal of eternal life that's offered for us all. Well, the second thing, and much more briefly, I just want to mention is that we're made clean through the dirt. We're made clean through the stain. There's kind of an irony here, isn't there, in that uh, we're made like washed laundry clean by the red, red blood. You know, it's not the best detergent in my view, but the dirt which, that, that which stains us is strangely the thing that makes us pure. If we look down at the passage, verse 13 speaks about the blood of animals that would make people outwardly clean, outwardly pure. It sounds so weird, doesn't it? The sacrifices would bring a cleansing to those who'd become impure through the law. That could have been because they've done something wrong. It could have been that they'd been unpleasant to someone else. It could have been that they had been ill even or broken one of the very strict codes in the law. And then they would come and blood would be shed to make them clean again. 
Blood would be sprinkled in the temple, it would be on the altar, on the implements used for sacrifice, all over the place. If we look down to verse 19, even the people were sprinkled with blood sometimes when Moses first gave the law. Last, last week I had a little cheeky thought, like I was like, oh, what if I popped down to whopping butchers just beforehand and, uh, and did a little demonstrate? I thought that probably was a step, an illustration too far, uh, maybe a little bit too extreme. But that outward cleansing that happened through the blood of the animals never got to the heart of the matter. Our sinful nature, the way in which we want to live for ourselves, right at the core of who we are, all the ways in which we deviate from what is good and perfect. Um, If you could just have up the next slide, which is a picture of the temple. So um, this is not actually, this is a replica picture of what the temple would have been like. But the priests would have gone into those outer courts to make those sacrifices uh, day in, day out. But apart from the Day of Atonement, that one day in the year where the high priest would go right into that, the bit in, in, which is uncovered there, that sort of encased place there, um, only one day in the year the priest would go through that, through the curtain, into the Holy of Holies. Um, Otherwise, everything happened in the outer courts. I think there's a bit of a picture here. It's about the way in which the old system used to work. They would be sprinkled by the blood of animals on the outward things. But only Jesus' blood enables us to be cleansed right in the very depths of our being, right in the depths of who we are. We're not sprinkled with the blood of an animal, but the blood of God. Jesus' blood enables cleansing and purifying and forgiveness right into our own holy of holies. We are now the temple right here in the midst of our own holy of holies in our hearts is where we need the cleansing and the forgiving. And the blood of Jesus cleanses our very consciences. That red stuff makes us clean. Last summer, I was involved in uh, something called the Ramadan Youth Project, and it was uh, during the month of Ramadan, we would go out in the evening uh, wearing our lovely high-vis jackets and go around, um, sort of mainly around Watney Market area, because there'd been a lot of anti-social behavior. We'd go and chat to some of the young people and just kind of hang out and basically do a bit of detached youth work there. Um, I remember one evening having a conversation with this young Muslim guy, and he said, how do you know that you're forgiven? And I said, well, I look back, actually. I look back to what happened over 2,000 years ago, uh, where this person, who was also God, hung upon the cross, Jesus, he died there. And the blood that was shared was shared for my forgiveness of my sins. So whatever I do, uh, however terrible I am, whatever mistakes I make, I can look back and say, no, it's done. It's finished. I'm cleansed. And he just said, I was, it was so sad because he said to me, um, you're so lucky. You're so lucky. Because day in, day out, I go through the same process of praying and I fast and I give money to charity. But I don't know uh, when I die, I still have no idea whether I'm going to go to heaven or hell. It will all depend on whether I feel like I've prayed enough that day, whether that's an acceptable sacrifice. And I said, well, I don't feel like I can make that kind of sacrifice. I just have to look to the one who's made that sacrifice for me. We can have immense joy because we don't need to carry out those rituals to be made right with God. What a relief. We don't need to do anything to make ourselves clean or forgiven. It is all done for us on the cross Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many.